Unsolved Mysteries If you're like me, you remember it from your childhood. The unsettling synth music. The trench coats in dramatic lighting. The mustaches and mullets of years gone by. Many have a story that has stuck with them, that pops back into their mind from time to time because it was so haunting, tragic, moving, or just fascinating in some way. You know the reenactments. You remember the theme. But do you know the full story? Join me. You may be able to help solve a mystery. Welcome to You Solved a Mystery, a podcast where we discuss segments from unsolved mysteries that have since been solved and reveal their final chapter. I'm Athena. And I'm Chandra. And if we sound exactly the same, it's because we're twins. So the story I have for you today is from the very first episode of Unsolved Mysteries. It was actually the very first special before Unsolved Mysteries was a recurring series, and it premiered on January 20th, 1987, and it's a doozy. Take me there. I'm going to give you a little background first. Unsolved Mysteries began as a series of specials in 1987, and by 1988 had become a recurring series and has run on and off for the last 34 years. The original specials had three different hosts, Raymond Burr, Carl Malden, and Robert Stack. Robert Stack became the permanent host and iconic face of Unsolved Mysteries for 15 years until he was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2002 and they stopped producing episodes while he went through treatment. Sadly, he passed away in 2003. But they couldn't replace him. They tried in 2008. Spike TV picked up Unsolved Mysteries gave it a makeover, new theme, and new host, Dennis Farina. Some people seem to like Dennis Farina more than Robert Stack, but I think they're probably wrong. And the reboot only lasted two years, so I think the viewers agreed with me. I haven't watched any with Dennis Farina, so (laughs) I'm speaking with no knowledge, but Robert Stack. Yeah, he's iconic. And after... Spike's version, it was 10 years before Netflix released its first volume with its new documentary style that has been widely acclaimed by fans. So the very first special was hosted by Raymond Burr, who was an actor famous for noir films and usually played villains. You might know him from Hitchcock's Rear Window or as the titular character of Perry Mason. When I was looking up a little bit about Raymond Burr on Wikipedia, I found something I didn't know. Although he was married for four years in the 50s, he was actually gay. At one point, he had a fake relationship with Natalie Wood to disguise both of their sort of taboo relationships at the time. Natalie Wood was, of course, the hugely successful and talented actress from Miracle on 34th Street, Rebel Without a Cause, West Side Story, and Gypsy, and has her own tragic unsolved mystery, 
when she mysteriously drowned off the coast of Catalina when she was only 43. But fairies abound. Fairies abound. We may not ever get the answer to that one. But when she was young, Natalie's producers would send her on dates with famous closeted gay actors so she would get recognition from being with them and they could hide their identity. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. So although he kept the outward appearance of being straight, Burr had a 33-year relationship with his partner, Robert. They were together until Burr's death in 1993 and owned an orchid business and a vineyard. And I hope it was just as adorable as it sounds. That's so sweet and wholesome. They were in love for 33 years and then homophobia comes along and ruins everything. Yeah, so I wanted to recognize that just because LGBTQ people have been erased and hidden from so much of history. So I wanted to acknowledge that. Now the story I have for you today is one about three murders, unsolved at the time, but believed connected, all linked to a gambling sport called High a Lie. Raise your hand if you've heard of High a Lie. Yeah? No? Yeah. I had a feeling, so I have a little bit about what it is. According to Wikipedia, High a Lie is a form of Basque Pelota, a term for a variety of court games played with a ball, a racket, a bat, or a basket, and a wall. It seems kind of like handball, but intense. <laughs> In the game, a ball is bounced off of a walled space with a handheld worker device called a cesta in a court called a fronton. You had to learn a new language for this podcast. I commend you. Hialai means Merry Festival in Basque. Hialai came to the U.S. in 1904 as a gambling alternative to horse greyhound and harness racing. And so High a Lie comes with a history of conspiracy. This is the most provocative sport I've never heard of. (laughs) So, it shouldn't be too shocking that in 1976, John Callahan, the president of World High a Lie, a sports betting operation out of Connecticut and Florida, had been forced to step down from his position due to suspected connections to organized crime. John Callahan had become president of World High Lie in 1974. Callahan was a Boston businessman who worked at two of Boston's largest accounting firms and as a consultant to the First National Bank of Boston. Two years later, after Connecticut police had begun to investigate his links to organized crime, Callahan was forced to step down from the position due to suspicions that he was involved with the infamous Winter Hill Gang. He had been seen meeting with mob leaders James Whitey Bulger and Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy. I've heard of one of those people. That's some big bad. Yeah. At the time, High Lie was only legal in four states, but $700 million was gambled on it annually, making it extremely lucrative. And in 1978, Callahan helped arrange the sale of World High Lie to a Tulsa businessman named Roger Wheeler. Wheeler was described as the millionaire with the Midas touch. 
His son, David Wheeler, who was interviewed on the episode of Unsolved Mysteries, stated that his father had been known to say, money's not everything, but it's the best way to keep score. That's so touching. Wonderful, warm memories between father and money. I guess they played Monopoly a lot. (laughs) Makes sense. Millionaire businessman teaches his kids Monopoly. Anyway, in 1978, before he had finalized the purchase of World High Lie, Wheeler received an ominous letter stating, quote, If you knew what was going on behind the scenes, you would not be involved. If I were you, I would get out quick, end quote. Do you think that was a genuine warning? That is a really good question. I feel like yes, but I don't know who it would have come from. There were so many players involved in this story. I don't even get into all of them. I'm just hitting the like title roles, but I I don't see why someone would send that note if they weren't sincere because they were not wrong. <laughs> well, what I'm wondering is whether they were just trying to get rid of him in order for someone else to take over power or if somebody in that world suddenly had this little bit of conscience slip through and they were like, maybe I can save this one person. Well, remember, Callahan actually helped to arrange the sale to Wheeler and he had been seeing with here he had been seen with Whitey Bulger and Stephen Flemmy. So I think the people at the top wanted Wheeler to buy it. But anyway, Wheeler ignored the note. I'm sure he didn't see any reason to take it seriously, give it any merit. So he went ahead with the purchase And I'm not sure why Callahan at all thought Wheeler was a particularly good buyer. But if it's because they thought he'd be easy to skim off of, they were mistaken. According to the Corrent's timeline of events, by 1980, Wheeler was concerned about mob penetration of the organization. In April of 1981, Wheeler confided in one of his sons that he suspected something was not right at World High Lie. He sent that son to Miami to, quote, check on the company's computer and asked him to, quote, keep his ears open. And all of this is over a sport where you hit a ball into a wall. And $700 million betted annually. Okay. His son David reported that despite his suspicions, Wheeler never said that he feared for his life. And according to David, Roger Wheeler had a set schedule that he followed like clockwork, including golf every Wednesday. It was during one of these regular golf sessions on May 27th, 1981, that two men parked their Ford LTD 70 feet from Wheeler's Cadillac outside Southern Hills Country Club, described as exclusive. And we all know what that means. Why? After Wheeler returned to his car, one of the men walked calmly up to him, shot him to death, and calmly returned to the getaway car, at which point they disappeared into the afternoon traffic. Despite a partial license plate, the car was never found. The shooter left behind four unspent shells that left law enforcement wondering if it was a signature or a warning. With no indication of robbery, the investigation quickly turned to that of a contract hit. In January of 1982, 
An FBI informant and gang member, Edward Brian Holleran, reported that he had been offered a contract on Roger Wheeler, allegedly ordered by none other than John Callahan. According to Holleran, Callahan had said he'd lose a lot of money if Wheeler wasn't done away with. Wheeler had launched a full investigation into racketeering within World Highlight, which put Callahan and the Winter Hill Gang's racketeering schemes at risk of discovery. Holleran also stated that Bolger and Flemmy were present for the meeting. The FBI investigated Holleran's claims for six weeks before deciding he was not credible. Just weeks later, Holleran and a friend were shot by three men while getting in their car outside a restaurant. Holleran's friend, Michael Donahue, was killed instantly, but Holleran was still alive and tried to make it back to the restaurant. He was shot in the parking lot before he could get to safety. Now, if Holleran was a hitman, this could have been related to any hit. This isn't necessarily related to Hyalai. I don't think Holleran was a hitman, necessarily. That wasn't his main task for the mob. And he had turned down the hit on Wheeler. So I'm not sure. I didn't dip too far into his history, but I'm, I don't think that was his main role for the mob. Police instantly suspected that Holleran's assassination was connected to Wheeler's. They thought it was too big of a coincidence. And when interviewed for the Unsolved Mysteries segment, Detective Michael Huff said, Mr. Holleran had substantial information, truthful information, end quote, about the circumstances surrounding the death of Roger Wheeler. So everybody decided that he wasn't telling the truth except for one person? Ooh, we'll find out. <laughs> Detectives were now searching for Callahan to question him about the murders. They discovered he had recently flown to Miami and that he made frequent secret twips. <laughs> <laughs> he sure. made twips to Miami <laughs> made- so that he could go to the beach and play <laughs> with the balls. <laughs> he made many twips to Florida <laughs> for unknown reasons. A few months after Holleran's death, on August 2nd, 1982, Callahan's car was found parked at the Miami airport with a foul odor coming from the trunk. Oh, that's not good. No. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that when they opened the trunk, they found the deceased body of John B. Callahan. Police said it was extremely professional. Callahan had died from multiple gunshot wounds, and several unspent bullets were found in the trunk with him, which was a curious link to the scene at Wheeler's assassination. The car had been washed, cleaned, and vacuumed. His killer had left a dime on his chest, Hmm. and Florida detectives say forensic evidence suggests Callahan was shot at World Highlight's nearby Miami Fronton, and then driven to the airport. At the time of the Unsolved Mysteries broadcast, police were searching for John Vincent Martirano, who was believed to have information and also wanted on an FBI warrant for sports tampering. Roger Wither's son, David, offered $100,000 for info leading to the killer of his father, and that's where things would stay for over a decade. So according to the Boston Globe, Boston's dominant organized crime groups at the time, the 70s and 80s, were the Mafia and the Winter Hill Gang. Technically, the head of the Winter Hill Gang was a man named Howie Winter, 
but most often it's described as being led by the brutal and infamous James Whitey Bulger. In the early 70s, Bulger formed a partnership with Stephen, the Rifleman Flemmy, who seemed to become his right-hand man. The Winter Hill Gang was involved with such classic mob activities as fixing, racketeering, gambling, loan sharking, extortion, and murder. By 1999, Bulger was wanted for 19 murders, including Brian Holleran and his friend Michael Donahue. Remember how the FBI found Halloran's allegation against Callahan, Bulger, and Fleming not credible, and you had questions about that? Mm-hmm. It turns out Callahan, Bulger, and Flemmy were indeed involved in racketeering schemes, and they had some very big help. It was determined that Halloran was killed because he was going to cooperate with the FBI. An agent testified later that he had inquired about joining the Witness Protection Program, but was denied. FBI agent John Connolly was one of the FBI's top organized crime investigators in Boston and Bulger's handler for the FBI. This made it incredibly easy for him to pass information to the gang, tipping them off any time the FBI was getting close in an investigation for years. And he wasn't the only corrupt agent helping them out. The logistical information to carry out the hit on Roger Wheeler had been provided by another FBI agent named Paul Rico. What a bunch of assholes. Yeah, they had quite a system going. So when Halloran went to the FBI with the info about Callahan, he had unknowingly walked into the lion's den. It was Connolly who tipped Bulger off, allowing the gang to take whatever measures they needed to cover their tracks. And it was also Connolly who told them that since the FBI was seeking John Callan for questioning, Callahan was now a weak link and could give them up for the murder of Roger Wheeler. Police and FBI investigated the Winter Hill Gang for decades, and various members did do various stints in jail. They couldn't always get away with everything or it would look like somebody was helping them. Yeah, their investigations were constantly impeded by the participation of these rogue FBI agents. But finally, in 1995, Flemmy, Whitey Bulger, and an associate, John Martirano, were indicted for racketeering and warrants were released for their arrest. Having been warned by Agent Connolly, Bulger took off and went underground, but Flemmy and Martirano were promptly arrested. And in court, what John... Martirano learned about his fellow gang members would change everything. Martirano knew that Bulger and Flemmy had been getting information from the FBI, but he didn't know that they had also become top echelon informants for the FBI way back in the 1970s. So they were informing on their competition? For decades, they'd been snitching on both the Italian mafia and their own gang members to save their own butts. Ooh. In 1979, Martirano was among 21 Winterhill gangsters charged with a million-dollar scheme fixing horse races, but because Flemmy and Bulger were already informants, they weren't indicted for the crime. 
So Bolger and Fleming were free to continue their double agent scheme with multiple FBI protections from both those who thought they were turncoats working against the gang and the FBI agents who were turncoats themselves alerting the mobsters to the FBI every move. They had it made. That's a lot of bad people. But by becoming informants, Bolger and Fleming had violated Martirano's code of loyalty, and that was a huge mistake. You gotta have a code. Oh, and does Martirano have a code? John Vincent Martirano began his career at a young age. Known also as the Executioner, Mm. Martirano's specialty was conflict resolution. Yikes. His first murder was of an ex-con he believed was going to rat on his brother. In an interview he did with 60 Minutes, he stated that he saw no problem with it because he was protecting his family. By the 1970s, he was running with the Winter Hill Gang, pulling off whatever hit or assassination they needed. According to the 60 Minutes interview with Steve Croft, he once murdered a man in broad daylight in a crowded bar and then walked out, changed, and went back to work. By 1978, Martirano had already killed 18 people, but after the 1979 indictment, he fled Boston and and for several years lived a quiet life in Florida. Then, in 1981, and I quote CBS here, Bolger and Fleming called, asking him to carry out a murder that made headlines across the country, the assassination of a wealthy corporate executive in the parking lot of the exclusive Southern Hills Country Club in Tulsa. I think I know who that is. Roger Wheeler, yep, the millionaire with the Midas touch and owner of World High Lie. Then, After Connolly marked him as a weak link, John Callahan himself became Martirano's 20th and final victim. So, so the bullets were a signature of Martirano. Something like that. I couldn't find exactly what it meant or if he always did that, but I think it must have been. Martirano had, and I imagine still has, a twisted but fierce sense of loyalty. Martirano reported to 60 Minutes that he didn't keep count of his murders, and when he confessed to the FBI, he was surprised to count up to 20. He said he preferred the term vigilante to hitman or serial killer, because in his logic, a hitman implied you were getting paid, and serial killers enjoyed what they do. Yeah, I don't think that's what vigilantism is. He didn't enjoy killing. He did it out of loyalty. Yeah, it's still not (laughs) killing people for your boss so they can get more money. But because of this sense of loyalty, Martirano flipped on Bolger. A real vigilante would be the one trying to take on Bolger. Boom. He got his wish. He turned it around. Because, in his mind... Bulger, who he had considered a brother, had committed the ultimate sin by becoming a rat. He even said, quote, if I could have killed him, I would have killed him, end quote. You're like a sister to me, and I promise I'll never desire to kill you. Probably same. (laughs) (laughs) Moderato also took umbrage at being called an informant, saying, quote, nope, I became a government witness, not an informant or a rat. I became a government witness. One's got the courage to stand on the stand. The other ones are doing it behind your back and dropping dimes. 
And how can I be ratting on the guy who's the rat for 30 years? I'm trying to stop him from ratting anymore. End quote. He was arrested in 1995 and indicted on the racketeering charge and additional charges of money laundering and extortion. In 1997, the FBI publicly acknowledged during court proceedings that Bulger and Flemmy were longtime FBI informants, and Martirano was so enraged by their treachery that in 1999, he arranged a plea deal with prosecutors. The U.S. attorney who agreed to the deal, Donald Stern, said, quote, The only thing worse than this deal was not doing this deal. Because if we didn't do this deal, no one would receive punishment for these murders. Corrupt law enforcement arrangements would not have been uncovered and prosecuted, and the cancer in law enforcement that existed in Boston for a number of years would have remained there, end quote. This is such a weird code where his, his twisted sense of right and wrong and loyalty managed to allow law enforcement to seek a wider justice than just punishing the person who murdered people, but actually take down the system that was getting people murdered. Yeah, wound up taking them all down. But on the conditions of the deal, Martirano confessed to 20 murders, implicated Bolger, Flemmy, and FBI agents Connolly and Rico in many of them, and his cooperation helped solve nearly 40 murders. 40? Mm-hmm. He only killed 20 people. Mm-hmm. In exchange for his cooperation, Martirano served 12 years and two months in prison. Okay, like, I get that the plea deal was a good call, but 12 years is, it surprises me. That's why I quoted the attorney, Donald Stern, the only thing worse than this deal was not doing this deal, because it was extreme, but... 40 murders, so... Yeah. For what it's worth, which I'm sure for the victims' families isn't much, Martirano has said, quote, I regret it all. Does he actually regret murdering people, or does he regret murdering people for people who wound up betraying him? That's a good question, (laughs) and I don't have an answer. Um, He told 60 Minutes that he went to church to confess, and the priest asked, and I'll quote Martirano, Quote, well, what do you think I should give you for penance? I says, Father, you can justifiably crucify me. He laughed and says, nope, ten Hail Marys, ten Our Fathers, and don't do it again. So I listened to him. Martirano was released from prison in 2007 with $20,000 to rebuild his life. Okay, he got 12 years and he came out with $20,000. I'm not saying $20,000 will get you far, but I doubt that the folks in jail for having a bit of pot are getting out with $20,000. Yeah, I had to imagine that was another part of his deal, that they had to give him money to rebuild his life, because no, the majority of people in jail do not get anything when they're being released, so... That had to be a part of his deal. They have to scramble for a bus ticket. Yeah. In 2003, after trying to work various angles to obtain freedom with no success, and realizing things were only getting worse for him, Flemmy also cut a deal and pleaded guilty to 10 murders, including Callahan's. He confessed to being the one who lured Callahan to Florida. He was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Also in 2003... 
FBI agent Paul Rico was arrested for first-degree murder for his part in the Wheeler execution. He died awaiting trial. Agent Connolly was convicted of corruption, federal racketeering, and obstruction of justice in 2002, and of murder in 2008, and he's currently in prison. And he's actually eligible for parole this year, 2021. It took a long time to get him, and it sounds like he got a pretty short sentence for murder and corruption, for being in the FBI and helping people get away with murder. Yeah, who knows if they'll actually... This This will be the first time he's eligible for parole. I mean, I don't know what the chances of him getting parole are. Yeah. Whitey Bulger managed to elude capture until 2011, when he was finally arrested in Santa Monica, California. He had spent 16 years on the run, 12 of those on the number two spot of the FBI's most wanted, falling only behind, guess who? Osama bin Laden. Oh, He's really up there. In 2013, at 72 years old, Martirano again testified for the prosecution against his former friend. The trial was televised, which is how Martirano's neighbors in his golf course community learned of his past. Under the condition of anonymity, one told CBS Boston, quote, Well, it means I won't get into any arguments with him. Whatever he says, he's right. End quote. Wow. He's just out living his life, and these other people have to find out that he's murdered 20 people. Yeah. Uh, And they all regarded him as perfectly pleasant, a nice man whose partner brought them cookies at Christmas. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I hope they were good cookies. But I think that in the same way, his loyalty led him to murder without guilt for the Winter Hill Gang, that sense of loyalty, when he told the FBI, the federal government, the priest, he wouldn't kill anymore. I think that same loyalty has held him to it. And he's just been living a quiet life in his golf community. The New York Times reported that during his testimony, Martirano again recounted several of the hits he had completed in a, quote, kind of matter of fact tone used for reading a grocery list. But he was emotional when he said he learned that Mr. Bulger had been an informer for the FBI. It broke my heart, he said, end quote. Bulger was facing 32 counts of racketeering and 19 murder charges. And on August 12th, 2013, after five days of deliberation, Bulger was found guilty on 31 of the 32 racketeering counts and 11 murders, including Roger Wheeler, Brian Holleran, Michael Donahue, and John Callahan. He was sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment plus five years. So did Martirano get that reward money that Wheeler's son put up? I didn't find that anywhere. Is that how he managed to live out his retirement in a golf community? I have a really strong suspicion. No. (laughs) (laughs) On October 30th, 2018, at the age of 89, Whitey Bulger was beaten to death by multiple inmates with a padlock hidden in his sock. Oh, damn. Fun fact. This was the third murder to occur in the United States Penitentiary Hazleton in 40 days because of understaffing. Wow. Give it up for the U.S. justice system. So while the families of his victims found relief in his death, Bulger's family sued the prison for negligence. 
I mean, that makes sense. I agree with them. I don't agree with anything that he did in his life. And I imagine they probably made some poor choices as well. But they're onto something there. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. An actual fun fact I found about Bolger on Wikipedia is that while serving his first prison term in 1956, Bolger alleged that he participated in the MK Ultra program. Okay. MK Ultra, of course, was the CIA's experimental research into using drugs for mind control. So for 18 months, Bolger and other inmates who had volunteered in return for reduced sentences were injected weekly with LSD. Bolger attributed the night terrors he developed later in life to his participation in the program. But personally, I have a feeling it might also have been related to being in prison, trapped with hundreds of inmates who'd gladly murder him, and all the murder and torture he did. I think that'll catch up to you. And that's the story of the gambling sport of High Lie. I'm still sitting here thinking about this MK Ultra. Right. Um, the idea that inmates can sign up for an experimental treatment for a reduced sentence is kind of fucked up. Very, I would say. Yeah. Prisoners aren't lab rats. Prisoners aren't less than people. And prisoners don't deserve to be brutally murdered by other inmates. They're human beings, and sometimes they're human beings that did terrible things, but that does not mean that they're no longer human. Yeah. But is it even true? Yeah, I did say he alleged it, because it's quite a claim, but there's, you know, it's possible. So, it's interesting. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to connect with us on Instagram, you can go to You Solved a Mystery. And again, I'm Athena. And I'm Chandra. And this has been You Solved a Mystery.